Charles Conn and Robert McLean. Bulletproof problem solving. The one skill that changes everything. Narrated by Morag Sims and Marston York. To solve a problem, you first have to frame it correctly. Do that and the solution becomes clear. Some people do this intuitively without breaking a sweat. But you don't have to be a wunderkind to be a great problem solver. In fact, the basics are pretty simple, once you know them. And that's just what you'll be learning in these blinks. Blink one of six. When you're confronted with a problem, it's easy to immediately start thinking about how you're going to solve it. You rush off to gather data, consult experts, and analyse what you found. Soon, you're coming up with answers. There's just one issue. You've missed a vital step. Problem solving only works if you're answering the right questions. If you're not doing that, your work will be worthless. Worse, it might even be counterproductive. That's why it's so important to start the problem-solving process by taking a moment to think carefully about what question you're trying to answer. The key message in this blink is, to find useful solutions, you first have to define the problems correctly. Failing to properly define a problem can have disastrous consequences. Take the newspaper industry as an example. Newspapers dominated local news until the mid-1990s. Then, out of nowhere, a new competitor emerged, the internet. At first, online publications like blogs spooked the industry's top executives. But the more they looked into the problem, the more they relaxed. Since newspapers had survived the arrival of new technologies like radio and TV, why should the internet be any different? And anyway, no blog would match the kind of content produced by the large and experienced editorial teams working in newsrooms. Of course, that's not how things panned out. How did they get it so wrong? Well, they hadn't defined their problem correctly. Online platforms didn't need to poach readers. They just needed the folks who place ads in newspapers. In other words, executives were thinking about the quality of their content but the real issue was the quantity of revenue generated by advertising. When advertisers moved online, hundreds of newspapers started going bust. So what's the key to avoiding this trap? Asking yourself the right questions. Think about a problem and ask yourself, who are the key decision makers determining whether my solutions are adopted or ignored? What will success look like? And how will I know when I've achieved it? More importantly, how will key decision makers gauge whether my approach is working or failing? What's my time frame? Do I need a solution by next month or in a decade? And finally, are any potential solutions off limits? These questions won't just help you define your problem more accurately. They'll also prevent you from wasting your time coming up with great answers to the wrong questions. Blink two of six. A few years back, author Robert McLean started thinking about installing solar panels on his house to reduce his carbon footprint. Living in sunny Australia, going solar seemed like a no-brainer. But did it make sense economically? This question was harder to answer. At the time, 
government subsidies for sustainable energy were being phased out. But the price of panels was falling, and there were feed-in tariffs to consider. This is the price at which electric companies buy excess energy generated by individual houses. What Maclean needed was a tool to untangle this knotty problem. The key message in this blink is breaking problems down into smaller parts makes them easier to solve. At McKinsey, a leading management consulting firm, McLean learned to tackle problems using logic trees. Here's how that tool works. The first step is to formulate a hypothesis. In McLean's case, this took the form of a simple statement. I should install solar panels. Next, ask yourself what evidence would support this hypothesis. McLean came up with two criteria. If solar panels could reduce his carbon footprint by 10% and he could recover his investment within 10 years, installing them was a good idea. Stating criteria tells you what kind of data you need to gather. So let's take that 10% CO2 reduction. To calculate a possible reduction in your carbon footprint, you'd first need to know how much CO2 you emit. For simplicity's sake, McLean looked up how much the average Australian emits each year and used that as a benchmark. Next, he used website calculators to work out how much carbon he could avoid by switching to solar panels. He found that he could reduce his carbon footprint by over 20%. And what about the payoff? McLean added up the cost of the panels and installation. Then he worked out how much he'd save each year by using less external power and selling excess power. A simple analysis with online calculators provided by solar installers. The results showed that he could recover his initial investment in less than a decade. With only a bit of online research, McLean had solved his problem. He should install solar panels. This is the beauty of logic trees. When you state your hypothesis and the criteria needed to support it, you discover what kind of data can solve your problem. Blink 3 of 6 Atlantic salmon aren't endangered yet, but wild salmon stocks have been devastated by pollution, overfishing and mismanagement. A while back, author Charles Conn was hired by a charity working to prevent this from happening to wild Pacific salmon. These fish are hugely important to the North Pacific rainforest ecosystem. They were doing better than their Atlantic counterparts, but the long-term forecasts weren't promising. The charity's goal was to increase the number of wild Pacific salmon, but there were so many potential solutions and uncertainties around how to best use its limited resources. That's where Conn came in. He was there to tackle one of the most important aspects of problem-solving, prioritisation. The key message in this blink is, prioritisation is all about assessing your influence and the potential impact of solutions. How do you boost wild fish stocks? There are lots of answers. You could improve ocean conditions or restore damaged habitat. Reducing fishing quotas or tightening regulations on sport fisheries could help. But the real question is, which strategy gives you the most bang for your buck? The best way to prioritise solutions is to look at the interaction of two factors, the scale of their impact and your ability to influence outcomes. Let's start with high-impact, low-influence solutions. Improving ocean conditions would be great for salmon stocks, 
but it would require the coordinated effort of multiple states and international organizations. Put another way, it's highly effective, but it's beyond your influence. There are also low-impact, low-influence solutions. A charity can't reduce the number of sports fishing licenses being awarded unless it spends decades lobbying politicians. But even if it did that, the evidence suggests that this strategy isn't particularly effective at boosting wild salmon stocks. Imagine, though, that the head of the charity was also the government minister in charge of issuing fishing licenses. Now you'd have a lot of influence, but you'd still be looking at a low-impact solution. That brings us to high-impact, high-influence solutions. Pacific salmon aren't just ocean dwellers. They also travel upstream to spawn in freshwater rivers in Alaska, British Columbia and the Kamchatka Peninsula. That gave Con's team an idea. Go to the source of the problem and focus on improving conditions in the most important breeding rivers. The result? A manageable project limited to three or four rivers where the limited resources of the charity could be deployed to maximum effect. Blink four of six. Problem solving can be extremely complex, but you don't need an advanced degree in statistical analysis or fancy mathematical models to get started. What you do need to do, however, is eradicate biases. According to experts, there are more than a hundred common cognitive errors that any one of us can make. Take confirmation bias. That's the tendency to focus on evidence that reinforces our existing beliefs and ignore information that contradicts them. Then there's the sunk cost fallacy, doubling down on losses because we don't want to admit that we've gotten it wrong. The list goes on. So what's the best way of avoiding these pitfalls? In a word, teamwork. The key message in this blink is egalitarian work processes can help your team beat individual biases. Take it from Philip Tetlock, the author of Super Forecasting. The book focuses on the art of making predictions and sheds light on teamwork. Tetlock's data shows that well-organized teams always outperform the most talented individuals when it comes to forecasting future developments. In some cases, they even do better than computers capable of processing huge quantities of raw data. So what does well-organized mean here? Tetlock states that the best teams optimize their problem-solving processes to encourage an egalitarian atmosphere in which everyone's proposals get a fair hearing. This idea is deeply embedded in the culture of the consulting firm McKinsey, which has a policy called the Obligation to Dissent. This policy means that junior team members aren't just encouraged to voice disagreements with senior staff, they're obliged to air their differences. Superiors, meanwhile, commit themselves to listening to these views. Why is this so important? Well, McKinsey believes that poor problem-solving is usually the fruit of one particular form of bias, rating ideas not on their merit, but on the status of the person proposing them. By contrast, when everyone has a voice, there's a much higher chance that the team will act on the best ideas. Assigning team members 10 votes represented by sticky notes is a practical way of fostering this kind of openness and preventing senior team members from dominating discussions. Put every proposal up on a whiteboard 
and then have everyone in your work group place their sticky notes next to the idea they like best. As an added bonus, you can make sure that senior members cast their votes last and don't influence anyone else's vote. Blink 5 of 6 Collecting data is one thing. Using it to come up with beneficial solutions is another. That's just the way data works. As vital as data is to solving problems, it can't really tell you anything on its own. You have to make it speak. There are good and bad ways of doing that. Hence the old statistician's joke about poor analysts torturing the data until it tells them what they want to hear. That approach is sure to lead you astray. But what's the alternative? It's time to talk about heuristics. The key message in this blink is treat the data well and it'll reward you with useful insights. The word heuristic comes from the ancient Greek heuriskein, meaning to find. As the word's etymology suggests, a heuristic's purpose is to help you find something, specifically a solution that meshes with the data in front of you. Let's take a closer look at a couple of handy examples. First off, Occam's razor. This logical tool was honed in the 14th century by an English philosopher called William of Ockham. It states that the simplest solution is usually the correct one. Whatever your problem, your best bet is to run with the hypothesis that makes the fewest assumptions. Take a simple math example. Say you have four assumptions, each of which has an 80% chance of being correct. Run the numbers and you'll see that the probability of all four being correct comes to just over 40%. If you only make two assumptions, by contrast, it's 64%. In other words, the less you assume, the more likely you are to be right. Here's another heuristic, the 80-20 rule. It was developed by the 20th century Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, which is why it's also known as the Pareto analysis. It states that 80% of outcomes are frequently determined by 20% of causes. For example, it's not uncommon to discover that 20% of a product's buyers drive 80% of sales. To run a Pareto analysis, you'll need to list your problems. This could be things like customer complaints, missed orders or damaged products. Next, score each problem based on how big a difference solving it will make. Now that you've listed your problems, Identify their root causes, things like lack of training, broken equipment or unclear processes. Finally, group the problems by their root causes and add up the scores. The higher the total score, the greater the impact of solving this issue or cause will be. Blink 6 of 6 Organisations often want to understand the effects of their policies. Take governments. Does cutting taxes boost economic activity? Ideally, you'd run an experiment to find out. How? Well, you could pick a control group within a certain income bracket, leave their taxes untouched, slash everyone else's, and see what happens. But this kind of real-world experimentation is ethically dubious and, in many instances, downright illegal. That's just one example of how an organisation might be prevented from gathering data. In other contexts, budgetary constraints have a similar effect. But there is a way around these obstacles. The key message in this blink is 
You can find lots of useful data in the real world if you take the time to look. Take it from Evan Soltis and David Brookman, two political scientists who wanted to find out if American voters discriminate against minority candidates in elections. There was no way they could create an experiment of their own to answer this question, so they turned to a natural experiment. Natural experiments are experiments run accidentally by the world that generate the data you're after. In Soltis and Brookman's case, it was a voting procedure used by the Republican Party during presidential primaries in the state of Illinois. Rather than casting ballots for candidates like Trump or Romney, voters selected delegates who represented them. This isn't unusual in the United States, but there are two quirks in Illinois. First, the names of these delegates, who are politically unknown and often ungoogleable, also appear on ballots. Second, voters don't have to vote for their preferred candidate's entire slate. They can put a check next to, say, two of Trump's delegates or two of Romney's while ignoring a third delegate. This means that voters have a good idea of delegates' ethnicity. Jose, for example, is more likely to be Latino, while Tom and Dick are likely white. This also means that voters can choose between delegates standing on identical platforms. If voters really do discriminate, it stands to reason that minority candidates with names like Jose or Miguel will receive fewer votes than delegates with names like Tom and Dick, relative to the total number of votes cast for candidates like Trump or Romney. This is a great natural experiment because it gives the researchers the information they need to begin answering their question. All they have to do is sift through the data, a task that requires significantly fewer resources than running an experiment of their own. The moral of this story? If you look long enough, you're likely to discover that someone else's data can answer your question. You've just listened to our blinks to Bulletproof Problem Solving by Charles Kahn and Robert McLean. Problem solving is one of the most important skills in the modern workplace. So how do you go about it? Well, the answer to that question is also the key message in these blinks. The most important part of solving any problem is defining that problem in the right way. Once you've done that, you can start breaking it down into smaller parts and prioritizing solutions. Here, you'll want to look for high-impact, high-influence outcomes. Creating egalitarian work processes will make problem-solving even more effective as it'll help you avoid biases. Have you got any feedback? We would love to hear what you think about our content. Just drop an email to remember at Blinkist.com with bulletproof problem-solving as the subject line and share your thoughts. 